So um, we have been systematically working our way through first the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. So we've been that have been doing that. We've been on the first uh, the first thread of the Eightfold Path, which is right understanding, and uh, we we've been talking about the nature of the mind and consciousness as as a part of of right understanding. Um, and we spent quite a few weeks uh, talking about the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness. I think that's a really good, solid foundation. Um, the way we sort of ended up last last month was seeing that what was relating the structure of the mind to the idea that there is no uh, there is no separate abiding self, uh, which is one of the three characteristics of existence: impermanence, no self, and suffering. So it would probably be appropriate for us to uh, continue that theme. Maybe talk a bit about uh, impermanence and suffering. And, and emptiness. The three, the, 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 there are four, the three characteristics have four <laughs> parts to them. Because in the Mahayana, they focus on emptiness. And um, emptiness is a way of, of interpreting impermanence. And then emptiness of self is. Uh, that is the characteristic of no self. So, in a sense, the idea of emptiness spans both impermanence and, and no self. <clears throat> so, let's look at the idea of impermanence for a moment. Now, everyone, without exception, knows that things are impermanent, right? Nowadays, any modern person knows that. Even suns and stars are impermanent, that this planet is impermanent, that the universe itself is impermanent. So that is, that's a very ordinary understanding of impermanence, that everything passes away. Um, what's very interesting about this is all, although everybody knows that everything's impermanent, we act as though things are permanent. We we act as though uh, when we put something away that we can go back to it and be just like it was when we put it away. And then we're always surprised when the mice are chewed it up, somebody's walked off with it, or time in one way or another has has deteriorated or diminished that object. Um, we take other people and our relationships with them uh, for granted in a way that demonstrates that we do not understand impermanence. We're shocked when somebody says they don't want to be with us anymore. 
We're shocked when our kids grow up and change. We're shocked when somebody dies. And it's a very interesting thing. When somebody dies, how many of the people that are grieving are grieving, amongst other things, because of their most, their, their failure to spend time with or appreciate or interact with the person that's passed away in the way they would like to have. Is always a sense, not always, but it's very often the sense of, of, you know, now they're gone, now it's too late. I always intended to spend more time with them or do this with them or do that with them. Or I always intended to tell them this or that or to talk about this or that. And they're gone and we can't. Or Sometimes people are just, they punish themselves so much because the last time they interacted with that person it was in, in anger or some other kind of negative emotional state. We wouldn't do this. We wouldn't behave these ways if we really believed in impermanence. So the ordinary understanding of impermanence really isn't worth much. As in, in the practice of the Dharma and through meditation, you will become powerfully struck by the truth of impermanence, by the fact of impermanence, you'll begin to realize it in a way that changes you so that you no longer take things and people for granted, that you realize that, that every moment is the only one there will ever be like this. And every, every interaction, every experience, becomes precious. Uh, and as you realize this, the quality of your life improves enormously because you know how much of your life uh, you don't truly live. You pass through or it passes you by while you're preoccupied with something else. This, this speaks of not understanding impermanence. When you do understand impermanence, the present, the present moment is precious. And the present moment becomes a treasure that you take the opportunity to appreciate and enjoy. Um, when that happens, you can be said to have had a mundane insight into impermanence. You're still at the level of understanding impermanence as meaning things arise and pass away, that nothing lasts, that some things last longer, some things don't last as long, but you're still living in a world of things, and things last, and the person that you said goodbye to this morning is exactly the same person that you're going to say good evening to when you come home this evening, and that's not true. But the impermanence that the Buddha spoke of was a radical impermanence. And this is the impermanence you discover by examining phenomena, all phenomena, sensory phenomena, mental phenomena, any kind of phenomena, examining them very closely with an open mind. What radical impermanence is, is the realization that 
Well, it's not that things don't last, it's that there are no things. There is only process. Radical impermanence means there is only change. There is only change. And that the things that make up our lives are just the ways that our mind divides the process up. And that the person that you saw this morning and that you'll see tonight, that person is a process, not a thing. And the, their very thingness is a projection of your mind onto the process. That's what radical impermanence is. And when you realize that, then you'd have a super mundane insight beyond the worldly view of things that arise and pass away, that there is nothing but change. Um, actually, just to tie this into dependent origination, everything is causally interconnected. It's actually kind of the same thing, that if everything is causally interconnected, just as in time there are no separate things in time that arise and pass away. There is only change. Sort of going laterally, that due to this total interconnectedness, the appearance of, of there being a number of separate objects making up the present moment is also an illusion. In other words, it's not that there are a bunch of different processes in this room that look like people. It really, there's only a single process that looks like different people. <laughs> that, that, that's how radical these notions are that the Buddha's introduced. And of course, you know, the, the point of the practice is to discover these firsthand for yourself because of the amazing effect that it has on you to discover them. And the idea of no self is the same thing as realizing that you are just a process. And that as a process, you are not independent of causes and conditions. As a matter of fact, you are a product of the universe, an ever-changing product of the universe. And you're not separate. Everything that you do, including every thought you have, affects everything else. Even though through the filter of your mind, it may seem that that isn't the case. It may not seem that even a passing thought in your mind affects the whole universe. It actually does. So, so no self and impermanence, radical impermanence, and uh, radical dependent origination. You see how they all fit together? And this idea of emptiness is not at all different than these. You see, what is it that things are empty of? We talk about emptiness. Unfortunately, if you read and hear people talking about emptiness, you'll often start getting the idea that emptiness is some kind of stuff, or else you get the idea that emptiness means that nothing exists, a kind of nihilistic idea. But emptiness, 
I mean, it's a it's an ordinary word to be empty. You have to be empty of something. There has to be something that's absent in order to speak of emptiness. And the way the word is defined in Mahayana Buddhism is that emptiness means to be empty of self-existence. That's one, and the other is to be empty of any self-nature. And it sounds like you're taking a philosophy course now, and your eyes are already ready to glaze over. Empty of self-existence, well, empty of self-nature. They sound the same. What's the difference? What are you talking about? Well, self to be self-existent, self-existent means that your existence isn't dependent upon anything else. And philosophically, that becomes very complicated because then, you know, if, if you're self-existent, then nothing can affect you. Which is kind of what, you, in the back of your mind, it's what you thought yourself was. This person that you've always thought you'd been. Somewhere in the core of you is something that was self-existent. That it wasn't dependent upon other things. And that's not there. You know, there's nothing... There's absolutely nothing that's self-existent. Everything is dependent upon causes and conditions. Everything passes away when the causes and conditions disappear. And of course, everything is the cause of other things. So, to be empty of self-existence means simply that everything is processed and everything is interconnected. But what about empty of self-nature? I mean, empty of having an, an inherent nature that corresponds to what you see or what you what you think something is, what you believe something is. You know, is, does this have the nature of being a cup inherently? No. And the answer is no. Well, where does its cup-like nature come from? Well, it comes from my mind. I've been using things shaped more or less like this to drink out of all my life. And so I have a concept of cup in my mind. When you realize that there are no things, there's only process, then there's nothing that no thing can have a self nature. Does that make sense to you? No thing can have a self-nature, because there can be no things. Okay, so the whole idea of self-nature becomes, well, it's all part of the process. Now, you ever heard the, the question, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, does it make a sound? No. <laughs> because your mind, nothing has any nature unless there's a mind to project the nature on it. And a mind from another planet could project completely on not even another planet. There's all kinds of minds that project a completely different nature on this than I do. You know. And the simpler things are, the easier it is to fool ourselves that we all see the same nature in the, in, in the same object. But if you go from cups and rocks and things like that to people right away, you realize, well, Everybody in this room has a different idea of who I am, including me. 
A really good example of that is language, because so many people um, have completely different experiences and understandings of very, very common terms. Yeah. Um, I just had that experience the other day where I can't remember the word we were using right now, but it was it's a very common word that my whole perception and experience of the word is, is very different yeah. from the way the other person experiences right. it. So we're not really communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good illustration of it. And, and uh, as I say, the more, the more complex the object is that a word is associated with, or a name is blamed, label is associated with, the more dramatically different everybody's idea of it is. You know, when I use a, a person like myself as an example, so everybody in the room, you can all talk to each other about Chula Dasa, right? No two of you are ever talking about the same thing. Not only that, <clears throat> your idea of Chula Dasa is changing moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. So, <laughs> even if you were able to talk to yourself a month ago, you still wouldn't be talking about the same thing. Oh, and, and ideas. In uh, the whole world of ideas, uh, you know, justice. There are Absolutely no two human beings that have the same idea of what the word justice means. And there's some who, if they could articulate their ideas, a third party would look at them and say, they're totally the opposite. Because it's, it's just a, a, very, it's a very complex notion, the more complex something is. The more empty it is of being what it appears to any one of us to be. That's what emptiness is. Emptiness of the self-nature of being what it appears to be. So Now, if something had a self-nature, then every, everybody, every kind of being, would have to perceive that thing in exactly the same way. But common sense and ordinary experience tells us that it is not so. For that matter, we think, you know, we, we say the word blue, and we can pick up something conveniently. This is, and we could all talk about this as though each of us is having the same subjective experience. But just actually, you know, your blue could be my red, or for that matter, your blue could be my itchy. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, the only thing that is consistent is that. Whenever I look at this, I experience the same thing. And whenever you look at this, you experience the same thing. And we both use the same label for what we experience. That's the only thing that's common. So, You're a synesthete. You could be tasting it. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yes. When you look at this, as a matter of fact, the people with synesthesia who actually, this does happen that they... You know, different colors have tastes. Mm -hmm. So when they see a color, they experience a taste. Mm -hmm. So, um, so nothing is what it appears to be, and everything is changing, and everything is interconnected. So there is no separate self nature, and whatever idea you have in your mind of how the world is is uh, 
That's just the model that your mind has made to account for its experience. That's all. So those are facts of existence. The third characteristic of existence is unsatisfactoriness. Also, in its more extreme forms, unsatisfactoriness is called suffering. When you're extremely dissatisfied, you suffer. <laughs> when you are only slightly dissatisfied, you still suffer, but not so much. And the this third characteristic derives from the first two or three. <laughs> uh, it derives from impermanence, emptiness, and no self. For this, and, and basically what it is, if you don't know that everything's impermanent, you act as though things last. Not that they last forever, not that they're permanent, but you act as though there's some lasting quality that you can rely on. And no matter how many times the world proves to you that you're wrong, you, you keep assuming that there's a, a lastingness to things. You keep getting you keep experiencing dissatisfaction, and sometimes severe dissatisfaction called suffering. When, when, the, when the world demonstrates to you that nothing endures, you suffer when you believe that you are a self, and you live in a world of objects, and you understand how this whole thing works. In other words, when you don't understand emptiness, and you don't realize that whatever you're experiencing is has more to do with your mind than it does with what's out there. When you don't understand emptiness, you suffer. You expect things to be in a particular way, and they aren't. And not only that, you can be in a situation that somebody else thinks is just fine, wonderful, and you're totally miserable. And you think that's coming from outside you, but it's actually coming from inside you. It's how you're seeing it. That's back to karma. The same thing happens to two people. For one person, it's good karma. The other person, it's bad karma. Because karma is who it happens to. Same thing happens to two people. One suffers, and the other doesn't. That's what that's what emptiness is about. So suffering is a characteristic of not understanding emptiness. Yeah. So when I'm sitting, I'm meditating. I can really get the impermanence and the no self. But it's so by incorporating those, it's hard for me to see the. Well, you can see it in meditation because in meditation you will want things to be, you will want things to happen in a particular way, and when they don't, you will feel unhappy, you'll feel dissatisfied, you'll feel restless, disappointed, so on and so forth. So it, it's happening all of the time. Um, where it becomes dramatic in, in meditation when you, when you are able to tune in and you realize that 
your thoughts and your perceptions are fleeting and changing constantly, then it, become, it, it will become very clear almost in the moment that, that not to recognize this is to suffer every time because, because it is the way it is and, and for you to cling to anything other than that is to guarantee that you're going to suffer as a result of it. So you can experience the dukkha in meditation and you, and you want to. But if you carry what you understand in meditation out into the world, then, then, then you can see it much more clearly. You can catch yourself in the act of suffering because you forgot that everything changes. You catch yourself in the act of suffering because you thought you knew how things were. You know, that's addressing both the impermanence and emptiness aspect of it. You see what I'm saying? So, in terms of the, the unsatisfactoriness of stuff, it's often easier to see it in the world than it is in meditation. But it's really important to see it in meditation because one of the one of the things that we think about reality that's not true, one of the things that's empty, is this idea that sometimes we suffer, but other times we're happy. And that if we could just if just the right things would happen, or if just if we could just control them, or just this, just that, just the other thing, then we would be more happy. And that whole notion is, is false. Because happiness does not come from outside of you. It comes from inside of you. Anybody needs to leave, feel free. And the flip side of that is that every time you're unhappy, every time you're dissatisfied, even a tiny little bit, it's come from inside. It hasn't come from outside. Yeah. On the road to emptiness, um, I can explain this or not. Um, getting rid of all your crap from when you were growing up and all your relationships and whether you got the job you wanted or you live in the place you want, is that on the road to emptiness, is getting rid of all of that? that that's an early stage of it. The thing is that Getting rid of your crap is a long, laborious process that would take 10,000 lifetimes, which you don't have. But you have to get rid of most of the bigger pieces of crap first. Once you get rid of some of the bigger pieces of crap, it moves you to a place where you can have these insights into emptiness and impermanence and no-self, which kind of flushes all the crap at once. <laughs> <laughs> But you have to get you have to get enough of it out of the way. You you, you, you kind of have to dig your way out enough to <laughs> to reach the flesh handle. <laughs> yes. Um, for me, it's still it's still a conflict between I can have these insights in these teachings yeah. and how to how to apply it to to our. Our society, our the work of our society, how to act, how to, how to take your stand, how to, how to find your way in it in a way that you also express yourself, and then self comes in. 
So for me, that is still a difference and yeah. a conflict. Yeah. Well, as your understanding deepens, it becomes easier. As long as you're still sort of halfway in between, partly seeing things one way and, and, and uh, acting out, out, out of acting and feeling as a result of seeing things that way, even though you're also seeing that things are another way and feeling and acting on the basis of that, you, you're always uh, you're not you, you're not totally clear in any given instance, and so. It's, uh, on the one hand, uh, it's, it's an effort. It's an effort to realize that you've had insights that, um, that tell you you don't have to be experiencing things the way that you are. You have to make that effort. And not only that, until your worldview changes at a gut level, until the intuitive way you see the world changes, there are going to be those times where you don't even recall what you've understood. You just react totally from the way that you've always, or to use her terminology, you react totally from the crap. <laughs> and, and that's the problem that we experience. As, we, as we're on this path, we, we become much wiser, and, and that wisdom pays off in some situations, but then there's other times when we really wish it would, but it's just not there when you need it. Isn't, isn't Hannah saying that there's a difference between reacting and acting? And we need to act a lot unless we're going to be completely passive. Mm -hmm. So what is wise action? Uh, well, that's Otherwise, what nothing yeah. will get done. Yeah. Even well, though I know it's yeah. being undone every we, we, that's what, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's why this, uh, this whole path is very tantric. Tantra is fake it till you make it. And this whole path is fake it till you make it. You know, you've got to keep trying to think and act as though you already were wiser than you really are. Right? But the... The next step to what you said, that's the interesting part. The yeah. next step is, and I, I say something that might be really, um, to, I, I don't know what to say, but sometimes I have the feeling, do I really want to change? Do I want to not have opinion, not having the feelings I have, not seeing what is for me injustice or not? Do I really want that? Okay. The only feelings that you get rid of are the mental suffering uh, that is your mind's resistance to what is. And I do, do I don't know, do you really want to get rid of that? I don't suffer then. I feel very alive, very active, very righteousness, <laughs> not suffering at all. So Well that that's where that's that's where you're supposed to be, the place where you can act. But you're not attached to how things turn out. Yeah, that's yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the crucial point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, you, the acting is, is very important. And you, your ability to act in positive ways should only increase yeah. as a result of, of true understanding, a genuine understanding. But genuine understanding spares you 
the frustration, the suffering, the disappointment. Yeah. You know. What do you mean by acting in a positive way? What does that mean to you? To act in, in a, a positive. in a positive way. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, well, two things. It means an, an an act that's based on wisdom is positive, and if you wanted some sort of criteria to judge uh, whether an act is positive or not, if the intention behind the act is to create, is, is to reduce the amount of unnecessary suffering in the world, then that makes it positive. Mm -hmm. You notice I said the intention. Because uh, we can do an act, which perform an act which does reduce to some degree the unnecessary suffering in the world, but do it uh, out of out of it. That, that might not be the intention. It might, the intention might be in some personal gain for ourselves. Yeah. So that makes it that makes the external act remains positive, but the internal intention behind it is is not as much it's, it's, it's self-serving and you might ask well okay well that's fine though but if I do something that I'm going to be going to experience some gratification for afterwards how is that not a good thing well the way what makes it not a good thing if your purpose is to gratify yourself and you've increased your attachment to self and things are going to happen to you that are not gratifying, including the possibility that you know you did this good thing in the expectation that this other good thing is going to happen to you, and then it doesn't happen, and you suffer. But something completely different happens to you, and you suffer more because through an act of self-gratification, you've reinforced your attachment to self. You've set yourself up. <laughs> so, I guess the Buddhists would say hell could be filled with ignorance. Yeah, I would say ignorance. Or, what I would say, I, I think what that, um, I think the real meaning of that phrase, the road to hell is paved with good attention, is ignorance. You think you're doing something good, but you're not really. So, but I would say that. The road to have the part of the ignorance is that you don't know your own intentions. Right. There's there's the, your conscious intention, and then there's layers yeah. underneath them. That's right. You think your intention is this, but your intention really, if you look at a deeper level, is something different. This brings up um, um, a conflict that I have often, and that is um, there are people around me with certain needs. And uh, my, my practice of meditation um, is very important to me. Mm -hmm. And so there are moments when um, other people's needs are, are competing with my practice of meditation. Yes. You know, and my practice of meditation is self-serving, mm -hmm. right? So how do you address that conflict? Well... You have mixed intentions, okay, and 
Definitely, as long as you're still attached to the notion of, of yourself as a separate entity, uh, part of your motivation for practice is, is going to be, excuse me, the reward that you experience yourself from that. I mean, even I, I want to become enlightened, I don't want to suffer anymore. Yeah. That is, that is self-serving. But uh, it would be purely self-serving if you didn't know any of these other stuff that we've talked about, and you were meditating in the same way that you might uh, use a drug or, or alcohol or something like that, uh, or or embezzle money or something like that, you would do something purely for the idea that, that it's going to be to your benefit in the future. Yeah, embezzling money, maybe that's a good thing to compare with, okay? That's very self-serving, but meditation, it does benefit others, and it has the potential to reduce the unnecessary suffering of you and of other people around you. So if you can keep that in mind, then it's not so self-serving. I mean, if you can genuinely remember that, I'm not just doing it. You see, the problem usually is when we're in a situation where we're trying to meditate, we're trying to practice, and other people want our time and attention instead. They succeed in making us feel guilty. And so we don't do it, or we do less of it. So you have to somehow get clear enough in yourself so that you get past the guilt. In some cases, I mean, you know, if some terrible thing was happening to your son and you said, well, he'll have to deal with it on his own because it's time for me to meditate. Well, you know, yeah, that, that definitely that would be selfish. But if your son or your husband or your neighbor or your mother or somebody else just wants more of the same old kind of gratification through personal interaction, attention from you, things like that, which actually, if you think about it, uh, is, is actually harming them more than it's helping them because it's making them more addicted to demanding that of you and demanding that of each other and demanding that of other people and expecting a greater reward from it that can, that can ever provide. So, you know, for example, your, your mother wants you to spend time with her and pay attention to her. Well, there's a certain amount of that, that out of the goodness of your heart that you can't do. But there's also a certain point where if you have the clarity, you can see, okay, it's actually better for her if I limit the amount of time I gratify this need and feed this addiction. Uh, it's better for her if I limit that and do my meditation. So... It's a delicate balance there. It is. It's a delicate balance. And it's all about your being able to understand and see clearly. Because we talk about not knowing our intentions. Uh, it's, it's, it's important to get clear on your intention. So you, you can think you're meditating selfishly, and you're not clear on your intentions. 
to this, you said so often that there is no separation in the end between meditation and our daily life. In the end, it is what we live, right? So in, in, in view of your question, when you not separate, uh, here's my meditation time and here's my family or whatever that is, mm -hmm. you can also transfer this and it becomes easier mm -hmm. to yeah. use those, those insights you have in meditation mm -hmm. to deal with situations differently. That is really the question also I have a lot, how to transfer, you know, what you learn. Uh, transferring, yeah. yeah, to meditate when you're interacting with people. At the same time, yeah. but it's a different kind of meditation. You're not going to be able to yeah. do that if you don't spend some time with your eyes closed yeah. by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I, what you're talking about, and this might sound silly, but I always think about when you're on a plane and if the plane goes down and they talk about the oxygen masks to secure your own mask first before yes. you go on and help <laughs> others, because if you don't do that, then you that's exactly right yeah. and if you keep giving up your meditation time to spend time with your mother one of those days you're going to blow up and say listen mother <laughs> <laughs> so put your own oxygen mask on first yeah. going back to impermanence yeah. um, just wanted to an idea slash framework for perceiving that I've played with and I wanted to bounce off of you um, is so impermanence, the objectifying of the world, the reification of perception, clearly like it's, it's object permanence, you know, mm -hmm. it's a very basic thing that we develop as an infant and all that stuff, right? So the idea that the only solidity is this concept that I'm attaching to that thing over there, that fell, you know? So when I look away, I saw the same idea and I look back and it's still the same idea, even if the whole thing has changed. So when we kind of step out of this tendency of the mind to conceptually carve up our experience and we see the field of experience as this one single thing, that's a dynamic, constantly shifting process. Uh, from that perspective, perpetual moment by moment impermanence seems kind of obvious. Because that thing that my mind wants to say is a thing is only defined in like relation to everything else. So when the perception is seen as holistically, you know, the relationship that that has to everything else is always going to be different in minute ways and in big ways, you know? So is that like, a, I don't know, it seems like that would be a very helpful perspective to take in seeing impermanence. And does that get to the same core of impermanence as the kind of, you know, arising and passing away experience, you know, where it's like a very like, it seems like, you know, like that kind of arising and passing away experience is very like fine grained kind of impermanence that one experiences compared to this, I don't know, bigger perspective, still like gross level perceptions, but there's still this constant shifting that's evident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything that you can see at a really fine grained level is also the case and is also visible at the grossest level too, mm -hmm. and what uh, what we should talk about next week. I'm, I'm going to be back next Thursday, and what we should talk about next week is all that you experience are your mind's ideas of how things are. This is a really important part of emptiness. Is that Everything you experience is empty of being 
what you think it is. But all you experience is your mind's projections, your mind's idea. And, and uh, what you're after is to get to that place. It, it's the only way your mind can understand the world, is to impose sameness and separateness and discreteness on it. You, you won't get to a place where your human mind can see the world as it actually is. It will only see it in terms of things that it projects. But the place you want to get to is where you see the illusion, but you know, you understand the reality behind it. You're not fooled by it. That's where you're trying, that's where you're trying to get to. So the more different ways that you can directly experience the way things are, as opposed to the way they appear to be, then the more you can, the more capable you become of residing in this place of seeing the world as others see it, seeing the world the way you used to see it, but not being fooled by it. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that aspect of emptiness next week. The other thing I want to deal, deal with is the nihilistic notion that emptiness means nothing exists. It doesn't. It just means that none of the things you think you see exist. But something does. There's something that causes you... We may never know... We, not may. We will never know the true nature of what's out there, outside of the mind. But outside of mind is something that affects your mind and my mind, and, and we have this perception that we give the label cut to. There really is something out there, although we'll never know what it is. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. The nihilistic idea is false. The other idea that's false is that the only reality is what's inside your mind, which is kind of related to that. When, when you decide, well, none of these things really exist out there at all. Only thing, the only things that really exist are in my mind. Uh, that's called solipsism. And it's, uh, it's not a good place to be. But that's the other thing that happens when people misunderstand emptiness, is they think it means nothing exists, and then they, uh, then they take it to mean that the only thing that really exists is my mind. Okay. Well, all right, we'll continue next week. Thank you.